This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. This is downright apocalyptic, what's predicted for Buffalo. I went to college at Buffalo State University of New York, and, you know, it's a city that I really love the city, and it's a city that knows how to deal with snow. I can remember lots of blizzards during my four years there. But four to five feet of snow is predicted for Buffalo, which sits on Lake Erie and has this lake effect thing where the snow just piles up. And, I mean, it's going to be, if it's anything resembling, it's just going to be paralyzed for days. Nobody's going anywhere. So um, good luck to the good folks of Buffalo. Um, This is not exactly a well-planned attack, but uh, a guy showed up at the New York Times building in Manhattan yesterday to speak to um, reporters in the political section. Um, He also had, let's see here, an axe and a sword. Um, I don't know. They thought he, he thought he was, they were just going to wave him through. So the police were called. He was taken to a psychiatric evalu- a hospital for evaluation. Uh, that's great. Uh, you know, look, I mean, there have been, going back to the days of anthrax being sent to newsrooms, going back to the days of uh, the Unabomber and so forth, I mean, there have been real threats against people who work in the news business, fortunately rare. Um, so Mr. Axe, I guess, has, uh, will be evaluated. Um, Karen Bass will become the first female mayor of Los Angeles. And, you know, I used to cover urban affairs, so I'm very interested in this. New York City and L.A., I think, are the two of the biggest cities that still have not had a woman mayor until now, 2022. Still hasn't happened in New York. Uh, so she's slightly, she's a Democrat who's slightly uh, edged out her Republican opponent. Carrie Lake, who, as I've talked about, you know, was declared the loser after most of the votes came in in Arizona, running for governor of Arizona. Uh, she is now saying she's assembling a legal team to challenge this. She's hinting that she believes fraud may be involved. She has every right to challenge it because, I mean, it was a 20,000-vote vote margin. She's also gone to Mar-a-Lago to uh, perhaps get uh, some moral support from the former president of the United States. Uh, let me Before we get down to our top five, uh, this is sort of the lightning round portion. Oh, let me say, it's Friday, folks. Hope you have a good weekend coming up. We are, in fact, I just finished telling my staff we got to make this, this, and this change to media buzz as we try to keep up with everything, including the complete mess at Twitter, which we'll talk about a little later in the podcast. Now, um, the incoming House chairman, that is to say the Republicans, particularly the one who will run the Oversight Committee, they're all popping off about Hunter Biden. We're going to pursue Hunter Biden. We're going to subpoena Hunter Biden. This is really about Joe Biden. And I'm not saying they don't have a right to do it. 
And I'm not saying uh, there's not fodder there. I mean, what Hunter Biden did was sleazy influence peddling to the degree to which his dad, as vice president, may or may not have known or acquiesced, whatever. Okay, you know, that's what opposition parties do. But to talk about it on the day, the very day that the GOP win in the House was certified or projected by news organizations, I just think it's awful timing. I mean, they, the Republicans ran and said that they're, you know, they had an agenda and they're going to take on the problems facing America. And now all the headlines are about Hunter. You know, maybe do that a little closer to January. It, it just makes it seem like, you know, it's their top priority. They can't wait to get at it. Meanwhile, Kevin McCarthy, who wants to be speaker, who's got to get more support from his hard right flank, if he's going to realize that lifelong dream, uh, is reported to have been negotiating and talking uh, with uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, who's going to have a lot of influence in this next Congress, about doing some sort of oversight on the treatment of the people who were arrested in the Capitol riot on January 6th. Seriously? I mean... It's being cast as the politicization of the Justice Department. Okay. That is a fair subject. But people who were arrested, I mean, it just, you know, we just had an election in which election deniers and um, those who are hyper focused on 2020 kind of got repudiated. And now one of their priorities is going to be looking into where people mistreated on January 6th. Now, if there's a couple of people who are – few people who were swept up in this that didn't deserve to be charged and then somebody wants to say this is, you know, DOJ malfeasance, okay. But if you're sending the signal that these were actually – you know, remember when Donald Trump said, we love you, they're patriots. Uh, patriots don't attack police officers. Patriots don't try to storm the Capitol – in order to block the certification of a duly elected president. So just wanted to touch on that. All right, let me get down to story number one. So the Nancy Pelosi story, stepping down from the leadership, remaining in the House, um, was just breaking when I had my podcast deadline yesterday. So I went back in and, and added it because I care so deeply about you, the listeners that I wanted you to have the latest information. So I got some of that in, but I want to talk more about it. Uh, what's fascinating is it's almost like it was all orchestrated. So, look, I'm sure it was a tough decision for Nancy Pelosi. By the way, you know, is getting a lot of praise, for, even from people who politically disagree with her, for her amazing career. I heard Robert Gibbs, who was Obama, one of Obama's press secretaries, saying, you know, the Affordable Care Act would not have passed had it not been for Nancy Pelosi. She is a fighter. She is, of course, a partisan. Uh, she has been in Congress for 35 years. She is the first female speaker. And But beyond that, I mean, she's, she's tough. Uh, so within two hours of Pelosi making that speech on the floor, there was this whole media guessing game, as you'll recall, it all seemed to fall into place. Um, Steny Hoyer, who is either an octogenarian or on the verge of becoming one, the number two Democrat in the House, said he would not seek re-election. 
And then as a not as a House member, but as a as a member of the leadership. And then Jim Clyburn, an octogenarian, very influential, said that he would not seek a leadership post. So they all cleared the way for the new generation, the next generation of Democrats to take over the House, meaning they're basically going to throw their support to Hakeem Jeffries. Uh, Here's a New York Times piece because he's a New Yorker. He represents a plurality black district, lives less than a mile from Chuck Schumer in Brooklyn, currently the number five leader in the House. Um, He is described as having crafted the messaging plan for the midterms, heavy on pocketbook issues like health care and taxes. Uh, Big critic of Donald Trump, no surprise there. Oh, who Hakeem once called the Grand Wizard of 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Uh, He was one of the prosecutors during the first House impeachment trial of Trump. Son of a middle-class social worker and a caseworker in the city. And often pairs his suits with sneakers. Uh, So the importance here is there has never been in either party a black member member leader. In other words, the House Speaker or the Senate Majority Leader or the House Minority Leader or the Senate Minority Leader. Never been a black person, 2022. So this would be another trailblazing um, development for a party that obviously depends heavily on black votes. He, he never even actually sort of came out and campaigned for it. I'm sure he did behind the scenes. Um, and he's praising Nancy Pelosi, and I guess that's how you do these things. Now, in a related story, Washington Post is reporting that uh, Speaker Pelosi, soon to be non-Speaker Pelosi, um, says that in the aftermath of her attack, of the attack on her husband, Paul Pelosi, which obviously must have been just the most traumatic event since the guy went there looking for Nancy, and his ba- even though he's pleaded not guilty, I mean, look, he's basically confessed. She says that the kind of trauma that she's dealing with is kind of like survivor's guilt. And just, you know, this got so caught up in the politics of it and the conspiracy theories about it and some Republicans making jokes about it. And just remember now that these are human beings, something we so often forget in political combat. Here's some quotes from Nancy Pelosi. If he had fallen, slipped on the ice, or was in an accident and hurt his head, it would be horrible. But to have it be an assault on him because they were looking for me is really, they call it survivor's guilt or something. But the traumatic effect on him, this happened in our house. It made our home a crime scene. She told reporters her husband's doing okay, but faces a long recovery. And she said the trauma extends behind, beyond her and her husband to her children and her grandchildren dealing with it too. Quote, if your spouse was in a situation where other people would make a joke of it, think it was funny, be collecting money for bail for the perpetrator, putting out a conspiracy theory about what it was about, it's so horrible to think the Republican Party has come down to this and no real rejection of it by anybody in the party. It is so sad for our country. And I would feel the same way and have felt the same way when Republicans 
have been attacked, most notably uh, Ski- Steve Scalise uh, at that uh, congressional baseball shooting five years ago. And Steve Scalise, he showed up late, but at least he went to Pelosi's speech. Most Republicans didn't show up. Kevin McCarthy didn't show up. I mean, these people have worked together for years. And I get it. You know, they're uh, dogged opponents now. But, you know, it just says something about the polarization that Pelosi goes and speaks for 15 minutes and basically very few Republicans uh, attended. Now, there was this other twist to it that, that I stumbled onto too late in the podcast, but this was actually a scoop by Puck News, Tara Palmieri, who's been an occasional guest on Media Buzz, um, hours before Pelosi took the floor, she reported on Puck News, which is a pay site, that Nancy Pelosi was going to keep her seat in the House. And the one reason I thought she might resign was exactly because of the attack on her husband that we're talking about, uh, but would give up her leadership post. And Pelosi's deputy chief of staff, Drew Hamill, got on the Twitter and went after Tara Palmieri in very personal terms, saying, well, I don't know who reads Puck, let alone pays for it, but I wanted to get ahead of Tara Palmieri's latest typo-ridden Pelosi scoop to let everyone know that it's complete trash, just like the last ones. Except it turned out it was spot on. Earlier, she had reported that Hakeem Jeffries was the likely next speaker. And so as it turns out, she was totally right. She just tweeted back, touched a nerve. And, you know, some of her colleagues are saying this was abuse. Like, why is he trashing her? And it turns out the story was 100% correct. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Story number two. Uh, Politico, John Harris, the founding editor, uh, long career at the Washington Post, writing about Donald Trump, who I have to say, after having given that scripted and rather subdued speech on Tuesday night has been kind of quiet. I thought by now he, having been sort of straitjacketed by his staff, and I've seen this 30 times during the Trump presidency, he'd be on Truth Social, you know, trashing people. And just, you just wait. It'll be next week or whenever it comes. It's going to happen. He's going to get aggressive. Um, but Harris had an interesting take on this saying, you know, that Trump's stirring up of outrage, kind of like an overused narcotic, he said, the effect of did he really go there rhetoric and norm-shattering behavior wears off after a while. Well, it's been a while. It's been seven years. Um, it is true also that Trump has been more innovative than many imagined possible in forever finding new lines to cross. But, says John Harris, the way that Trump and his movement would lose steam would be when Trump loses his capacity for delight. Now, you might say that's an inter- interesting word or a weird word to use. It used to be, and I can remember this, and remember, I've known Donald Trump since 1987, and I've seen all sides of him, uh, that even people who found his politics and character repellent 
could find something enlivening his performance. Trump in his earlier days was funny. He knew it and he used it. Yeah, he had that, you know, that sense of comic timing. At a minimum, there was no doubt that he was vastly entertaining himself. So on the week that he announced his third presidential campaign, meaning this past Tuesday, there's ample reason to doubt Trump is a master of demagogic arts. But in his long, numbing speech at Mar-a-Lago this week, something in the potion was off. And you could see that. He doesn't like reading scripted speeches, and then he kind of drones through it. The most significant change, it's, it's dramatic, was that in 2015, Trump was self-evidently having fun and good-naturedly inviting his audience to have fun with him. Now, the piece hastens to add, sure, he crossed lines in 2015, including the day that he came down the golden escalator. His assertion that there was a flood of undocumented immigrants, including many rapists, you know, they're not sending us our best from Mexico. But he had said at the same time, would do shtick and obviously was kind of enjoying himself. So the political piece goes on to say that CNN, where for years journalists took pride in opposing and exposing Trump, even as on programming grounds, the network was in a symbiotic relationship with him. On Tuesday night, anchors cut away from the speech. It's about 20, 25 minutes in. Um, in the middle for a roundtable analysis. No doubt they were responding to scolding from journalistic priests who warn about illegitimately amplifying Trump's bombast and deceptions. But the real reason was that listening to Trump's speech was a bit of a slog. Uh, I could personally attest that that's true. Unfortunately, listening to analysts on CNN describing it as low energy and full of falsehoods was also a bit of a slog. So basically saying it wasn't good programming. You know, if Trump had been on his game, CNN might have stuck with it for a while longer. But, you know, he reached a point where he declared, I'm running, as we all knew he would, and then he was kind of rambling. Deep down, Trump is too much of a natural performer not to know the truth. He is no longer having fun. When he is boring even to himself, it's going to be very hard to keep his audience. To which I would say, yeah, but he's not going to continue to be boring to himself. That's just not in his DNA. You know, there's been so many times, I'm sure his advisors all say, you know, you got to get away from 2020. You got to get away from looking backwards. You got to tell people what you're going to do. And there was a lot of looking backwards about how great and glorious his record was as president with a lot of airbrushing. And I fact check it and you can look up that column that I wrote on deadline. Um, but then, you know, everything became terrible. The instant Joe, instant Joe Biden took office. And now our country, you know, there was all this rhetoric about Joe Biden's going to lead us to nuclear war. Joe Biden is wrecking the economy. And if only he would be restored to power, that would all change. Now, let's get to number three, because the situation with Twitter and Elon Musk is getting to be a friggin' mess, but far beyond the mess that it was just a couple of days ago. I mean, there are all these headlines now. I think it was Drudge or somebody, maybe it was Huffington Post. You just see all these things. Uh, dead bird walking. Okay, with a picture of the famous Twitter bird. Now, it seems to me that Musk's problem is he keeps doing things 
in a day or two that ordinarily you'd roll out over six months. You know, Musk's version of it would be, I don't have six months. I don't even have six weeks, which is losing so much money, I've got to act quickly. But look, what he's doing is not just creating chaos, is not just being hard-hearted toward the staff. It really, I mean, there are people who have a hashtag now, RIP Twitter. I don't think it's going to vanish, but I think... I think running SpaceX and running Tesla is very different from running a social media company where you got to be able to deal with people and who are posting, advertisers, their sensibilities. So you probably already know that Musk put out a note to the staff, giving them about 36 hours to decide whether they wanted to stay or leave. And if they were going to stay, and remember, first he came in and he fired half the staff. So now you're down to a more bare bones operation. If they decided to stay, they had to commit to him personally that they were going to be willing to work crazy hours and just pour themselves into the job. If they didn't think they could do that, they could resign and they would get three months severance pay. Oh, by the way, he's, he's first he said, you got to work in the office at least 40 hours a week, you know, no ifs, ands, or buts unless you get permission from your manager. Now he's kind of softening that, saying, okay, well, you can do it if your manager attests that you're a great performer. Well, that's not that comforting, but he says it anyway. Okay, so according to sources now, the deadline was yesterday, 5 p.m. Eastern. Hundreds of Twitter employees appear to have decided to get out of there with the three-month severance. Look, if you don't take the severance and you stay and then your performance is not deemed stellar, I guess you could be fired and not get the severance. Twitter also announcing that it will close the office buildings and disable employee badges until Monday because now Musk is said to be worried that some of the people who have lost their jobs or decided to bail might come in and do some damage. I mean, wow. You can imagine where morale stands right now. So I don't know how many people Musk was expecting to quit, but if hundreds more are quitting, and you got to think a lot of these are pretty good performers who are pretty confident they can get another high-tech job, um, that that impact is going to be felt. So... You know, Musk's version of this is we got to cut costs. We got to get rid of people who are not going to be stellar performers. But to do it in that way, get people a day and a half to decide their future. And a lot of them apparently just didn't do anything, which I guess is tantamount to quitting. They just didn't respond. So um, Musk has brought in some of his engineers and managers from Tesla and other companies, but they're just trying to figure out, I don't want to say where the bathroom is, but, you know, how social media works. Um, some people now posting memes of gravestones with the epitaph that Musk killed off Twitter. Others joked there was only one employee left. Um, so it was yesterday afternoon where he sent out the email saying, well, you know, you, you, don't, you could work at home, et cetera, 
Uh, all that requires is approval from your manager that takes responsibility for ensuring you are making an excellent contribution. If the manager falsely does that to cover for you, then the manager will have problems. I mean, you can see where this is suddenly seeming like not the world's best place to work. Um, former Twitter employee has sued the company, claiming the work-at-home thing um, discriminates against workers with disabilities. Now, there's also a lot of funny stuff. So there's a golf influencer, a woman I never heard of. His name is Paige Spiranak. And she said, in case Twitter goes down, I'm going to post my cleavage one last time. Apparently, she's known for this. So in an effort to fully report these stories, to bring them to you, I went and checked this out. And indeed, there is her cleavage. Whether we'll see it again, I don't know. I probably will never see it again because I don't follow her. (laughs) And once is enough. But wowza. It is just, you know... I understand, I want to be fair here. I understand that Elon Musk didn't build SpaceX, didn't build Tesla, didn't overcome the naysayers. I mean, in many ways, he's brilliant. But, you know, he posted a joke saying, how do you make a small fortune on Twitter? You start with a large fortune, meaning his holdings. Remember, $44 billion, that was the price tag. But remember how he rushed out the verification service and now, and it was a complete and total disaster and Jesus Christ got verified and now he's had to put that off until the end of the month? All this stuff is ridiculously rushed. So it seems heartless. It is resulting in a partial exodus of employees, some of whom he may need. Look, some of them just may, for family reasons, say, that's not me. I want to go home and see my kids at five or six o'clock. All right? I get that. But Everybody is now, oh, what do we, we'll wake up tomorrow, there'll be no Twitter. I'm not so sure about that. I do think somebody posted, remember the fail whale where you tried to post something and you got a picture of this whale saying, sorry, Twitter is over capacity. I mean, that was years and years ago. Well, that might come back. Uh, look, I love Twitter. I hate Twitter. I admire what Elon Musk is doing. I think he's gone a bit nuts on this. Uh, and... I hope it survives. It serves a great function, maybe especially for journalists and politicos and so forth. But so I'm not going to do hashtag RIP, but I am going to keep watching it very closely because it changes every two hours. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. All right, number four, Uh, an equally fascinating business story. I mentioned this the other day after having vowed that I would never talk about crypto on this podcast because it was just too bizarre and I didn't understand it and the whole thing seems like a house of cards to me. So you'll recall that Sam Bankman, what an appropriate name, Sam Bankman-Fried has been kicked out of the company that he founded, FTX, which has completely and totally collapsed into bankruptcy. And... Also, we're learning more and more about how much he catered to the media. I mean, not only, I mean it was really a symbiotic relationship. Not only was Bankman-Fried on the cover of Forbes, on the cover of Fortune, but he also got pretty puffy profiles in the New York Times and Politico. And then he started giving money 
to media organizations which were favorably portraying him. I'm not saying that's the reason, but of course it doesn't hurt, right? It's like chicken soup. So that included money to ProPublica. That included giving money to Vox, which a Vox employee did a sort of an interview over text uh, with this guy who personally lost, I don't know, an $8 billion fortune. And he thought it was off the record, and he said, F regulators. That was just bad PR. I had to say that regulators were important. But the Vox person considered it on the record and published it. Um, And so now the guy has been brought in to help deal with the uh, aftermath of the disaster who also dealt with the collapse of Enron when that turned into this huge accounting fraud scandal way back in 2001 is named John J. Ray III. And he came in, took a look at the books, and he was just horrified. He said that he had never seen such a complete failure of corporate control. He listed a whole series of unacceptable management practices, including the use of an unsecured group email for access to sensitive data, and the financial information was deeply untrustworthy. And this guy, like, knows how to do this. You know, it's his job to sort of salvage what he can of this collapsed, bankrupt company. Um, Quote, from compromised systems integrity and faulty regulatory oversight abroad to the concentration of control in hands of a very small group of inexperienced, unsophisticated, and potentially compromised individuals, this situation is unprecedented. And he said this in the bankruptcy court filing in Delaware. He described lots of stuff, including the use of software to conceal the misuse of customer funds. Because that's what's being charged here, like that they made all this money, they took it from their customers and used it on themselves or for a related company, which I'll get to in a second. There was a total absence of independent governance between FTX and Alameda, which was this other company that Bankman-Fried founded that was also run by his girlfriend. I mean, this is just an incestuous mess. Uh, The FTX group did not keep appropriate books and records with regard to its digital uh, assets. Alameda made loans totaling over $3 billion to Bankman-Fried and an entity he controls and about $600 million to two other FTX executives because they're all a group of friends that kind of live together. Um, So Ray says he's secured about $740 million worth of cryptocurrency belonging to various parts of the business. You know, some of this will be used to, um, I guess, pay back people who lost, but can you salvage enough money to pay back all the people who lost their shirts and a whole lot of other articles of clothing um, by investing or having their crypto holdings be stored at FTX? Clearly, this is rippling through the entire cryptocurrency field. Um... Oh, this is a good tidbit. They don't have lasting records because Bankman-Fried relied on communications platforms that were set to automatically delete messages after a short time and told his employees to do the same. So what is this? It's on Snapchat where it automatically, you're running this multi-billion dollar company based on these sort of ephemeral digital assets 
all because you didn't want anybody to know about it. You didn't want anybody to know the secrets. Okay, number five. Okay, everybody that I talk to, at least of the female persuasion, is talking about Taylor Swift and her concert and what an absolute debacle the entire thing has become. It's absolutely incredible. So there is unbelievable demand for this tour that she's going on. And, I mean, women have gotten online, were promised if they had a certain credit card, if they belonged to a certain preferred group, they would be able to get tickets. They would get preference. And that didn't happen. And people waited for hours and hours, and then they signed back on, and you could see, like, you have a three-hour wait, and three hours later, you have a two-hour wait, you know. Uh, Ticketmaster ran this. Ticketmaster is coming under all kinds of heat. The Tennessee Attorney General uh, is investigating. The uh, Senator Amy Klobuchar has sent a letter to the CEO saying uh, this is absolutely horrible management. This is all a fallout of when Ticketmaster merged. It's about a decade ago with Live Nation to essentially control this monopoly. And now Reuters is reporting the tickets are already being resold for as much as $28,000. I mean, the tickets are expensive, uh, depending on when you get in and what your deal is. They can cost as much as, let's say, 300 bucks. $28,000, this bipartisan outrage. Finally, something Congress can agree on. Um, now, Ticketmaster is all, well, you know, I mean, she's just so popular. How are we to know that the, we, we, it wasn't our fault? Um, they, now, the Ticketmaster is blaming a staggering number of bot attacks, as well as fans who didn't have invite codes, because if you had one of these invite codes, you were supposed to be guaranteed a ticket. Even if you are told you have a ticket, um, depending on what concert you're going to, um, you don't actually get the ticket, at least in many cases, until maybe the day before the concert, which makes you think, well, what if those tickets aren't really available? What if the whole thing's a scam? Well, then you're promised a refund. But, you know, people don't want refunds. They want to see Taylor Swift. It is bad blood, to use the name of one of her songs. Uh, at one point, there were $3.5 billion system requests uh, flooding Ticketmaster. Ticketmaster. More than 2 million tickets for the tour were sold on Tuesday, the most ever sold for an artist in one day. I get it. It's Taylor Swift. But then today was supposed to be the day when sales, when tickets were opened up to the general public, not people who had all these special deals or special codes or access. And guess what? Sorry, folks. You can't get it. We're pulling it. We don't have any more tickets. It's over. Forget about it. Wow. I mean, this is just a calamity. I think this is going to not only obviously disappoint a whole lot of people, but, I mean, this is a big black eye from which Ticketmaster may never recover. And Taylor Swift says she'll never do business with Ticketmaster again. But how do you get around it if that's who controlled the tickets? You know, sometimes... Um, I remember getting Paul McCartney tickets, and you had to go to the, like the we, I saw them in Baltimore, you had to go to the individual sports stadium as opposed to Ticketmaster. But that probably made it more manageable. So to sum up, it's a friggin' mess. 
so many people are disappointed. So many people are frustrated. Uh, so many people are going to pay huge amounts to scalpers to get these tickets so they can see Taylor Swift. And, you know, I mean, this doesn't make Taylor Swift look good either. She's upset. Everybody's upset. But let's end on a lighter note. Those of you who get to go to the concert will probably enjoy yourselves. So once again, I hope you have a great weekend coming up. I would be very grateful if you'd subscribe to this podcast. I enjoy this time with you together. Media Buzz Sunday morning, 11 Eastern on Fox. See you Monday with more BuzzMe. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.